My name is Corey Campbell. This chair is really squeaky, so we're going to need to make that a feature if you don't mind. That's fine. That looks pretty good. Good. Hang on. So, can we talk a bit about Black Futures then? Maybe, yeah. Let's do that. I like your socks, but yeah, we can. Oh, thanks. Well, black features anyway. Well, we talked about this a bit a while ago, um, but I just wondered if you could say a little bit about the thinking behind why we're talking about black features as opposed to Black History Month. Yes, yeah, sure. I mean, um, you will hear this conversation nationally about, in fact, internationally, you will hear this conversation about the idea of only being able to celebrate the culture properly in one month is ridiculous. And that goes for a lot of different cultures as well. Um, and that it should be celebrated throughout the year as and when. Uh, but the, the main reason was really that it feels like we're sitting in a time of what will be black history and what is currently a radical movement and consciousness shift in terms of racial biases, uh, racism, institutional racism, and the true meaning of diversity when it comes to the black culture and heritage. And so th the conversation was really about if we are here in the middle of what feels like a universal shift um, and change, um, then surely we should be celebrating black futures instead and that encompasses black history and black present are you telling me off now i was just gonna say do you want to take your phone off the table and is it buzzing it yeah. doesn't stop it doesn't stop going all right don't cut this out this is the reality of life <laughs> um yeah so it, it felt like this is a real time to celebrate black past black present but more than anything black futures because we have to be progressive uh kinetic whatever other silly word there is for, for moving forward. And so it was really important to just celebrate where we're going uh, and, and ask our communities and local artists and, you know, uh, hairdressers and designers and all the rest of it, all the rest of the, um, I suppose, practices that are able to celebrate black culture, where they're heading towards, where they're going. I think back when we started talking about this, it was after we'd released the statement in response to Black Lives Matter, and you'd kind of asked people to respond to that and mm -hmm. ask us questions and call us out if they wanted to. Yeah, yeah. And we did We did actually have a few people did that, that we yeah. wanted to respond to, but I wanted to pick up on one of the questions, which in a weird sort of way fits in with all this temporal stuff, because Amy put forward the really important question like why now yeah. why why are we saying these things now um, amy's very provocative isn't she well so in a good great. way though yeah, yeah she's fantastic but do you feel i mean first of all i guess do you feel like that's fair do you think that this is something that we're just coming to as an organization and then from that like <laughs> oh hey there i i think that for a start i do want to say Amy was right to ask that question. Why now? What is this sudden energy that's going throughout many different organizations and places in terms of their black consciousness or their consciousness towards the black community? I think that Belgrade has its flaws and 
I'm very vocal about that, as you will know, Heather, and certainly as the senior management team will know. But I think Belgrade is also at the forefront of a lot of work when it comes to uh, opportunities. And I'm using these quotation marks, risky work. And I think that we have an amazing, what would be usually a learning and participation team, whether that's education or community. We have an amazing team in ClickSpring who are dedicated and love what they do. And I would honestly say that what's happened with the Black Lives Matter movement is it shook up a building like the Belgrade to think specifically about the black community instead of this term that I don't like to use. The term that we at the Belgrade decided to eradicate, which is BAME, BAME. I think that was one of the, the key switches that happened because I think we, are, we as an organisation understood that we were going through these motions of making sure that we hit our key performance indicators or making sure that we'd kept diversity on the stage and so on and so forth. But as we'd spoken about in meetings before now, what are we pioneering outside of what is the tick box exercises? And I think that's why Amy's question is so important about why now, because before now, everything that we've done, not just at the Biograde, but nationally, anything that kind of happens, happens because Arts Council have said, or there's a grant, or it's Let's Create, or what was, what was the old one called again? Creative Case for Diversity. And these things are really, really important. But what they should really be doing is making an organisation think responsibly. But instead, what what ultimately happens, and I think it's quite natural, is an organisation does it because it has to do it. And so an organisation doesn't go that step further into, actually, we've got black work on the stage now. How do we make sure that there's black people behind the scenes? How do we make sure that we've got stage managers, DSMs, lighting designers, sound designers, whatever is necessary? How do we make sure that we are creating a, a workforce that um, invites the black community in. They're all things that seem quite simple when you say them, but when the um, funding bodies or the whole tick box exercise that is, you know, keeping the building open, when all of that stuff is there and it only tells you to do X, Y, and Z, oftentimes organizations just only do the X, Y, and Z. And they don't really go the extra mile. But I would also like to say, when I came to the Belgrade, it was with Strictly Arts, Black-led theatre company. And the opportunities that we were afforded at the Belgrade, we were not afforded anywhere else in the West Midlands. And we tried. And once, obviously, we built a bit of a reputation, there were other venues that were interested. But we stayed with the Belgrade for that reason. Belgrade offered an opportunity to us that many other um, theatres just would not would not offer because we were deemed as risky, you know, and the closest thing we had to what was uh, afforded to us here at the Belgrade was actually Sarah, Sarah Brigham at Derby and, and her programming team instantly took a show from us. They didn't question it. They, they looked at the work. They said they wanted it. They paid us a guarantee. There was no big haggle as a new company. And we really appreciate that because I, I, I tell you, when you're starting out as a small theatre company, you can lose your really quickly. You know, venues either want you to dry hire or it's some box office split with some terrible clauses. 
Um, but Belgrade Theatre were always good to us and Derby were on it. So I guess in response to the sort of why now thing then, do you, is it fair to say that part of that is the fact that we haven't had to go through the same motions that we've been going through normally this year? Yeah, I, I would say so, definitely. I would say that's one of the reasons why the world caught fire during this time. I think there's this thing about a growing consciousness that goes outside of what your remit is. And I think that everything being locked off and then the tragic incident that really, I suppose, magnified the Black Lives Matter energy was because people had the time to take note. They weren't distracted and it was there for them to see and feel and Google and analyse. And that's a hard thing to do. So I do think it is about that also. But I do think it's the consciousness. When you have a consciousness towards something, it doesn't matter what the tick box is. So if it says, you know, you only have to do two performances with, um, you know, um, black stories on stage, your consciousness will go beyond that. Um, and whether you're able to do that, whether you have the capacity to do that or not is a different matter. And I think that's what's been lacking in your industry. When it's cold, be bold, don't let your mind freeze And in that moment, I knew that I could mind read Cause just the look in his eyes was saying, why me? I told him, don't think on it, think past it Yeah, it's hard and if I'm being honest So that's kind of where we are at the present time, I suppose What do you feel about the future at the hey, moment? I feel that the future is bright, the future is orange Do you remember that? <laughs> oh my gosh Remember orange, the, the, the telephone network orange? Yeah Am I being too loud again? No, it's all right, it's fine. Um, <sighs> Got excited there. It's uh, EE now, isn't it? It's EE, yeah. With the Kevin Bacon adverts. I don't like those. Not I don't like either. those. But Kevin Bacon's pretty good. I remember seeing him in that You Can't Handle the Truth film. Do you remember that one? What was that? I haven't seen it. Oh, gosh, it's a hit. It's by Aaron, Aaron, what was his name? Aaron, the writer was great. He Sorkin. started the theatre show. Aaron Sorkin. Kevin Bacon's in that. It was pretty good, in it? Obviously, he wasn't as good as uh, the main guy. I think that Mission Impossible man's in it too. Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise. What's the guy's name who says, here's Johnny. Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson. He's in this film that I'm talking about. Anyway, why are we talking we'll, about Jack we'll Nicholson? We'll find it. <laughs> Jack Nicholson's amazing, by the way. I think he's brilliant. Um, Where were we? Uh, We were talking about the future. Yes. Black futures. I think the future's, oh, the future's bright, the future's orange. That's what happened. I almost made that whole thing happen again, you know. <laughs> I, think, um, I think the future's bright if we allow it to be. This, this is the fact. It's a really daunting, deadly time at the moment. And I, I feel it for all organisations. Um, and I certainly feel it here. And it's a, an economic disaster. And people's mental health is all over the place, not just because they can't get into the theatre, just, just because of this this demon that is COVID that has knocked the UK for six. But I always think that where there's a breaking down, there's also a building up. And what I mean by that is some some structures that didn't allow for the reality of diversity don't have anything anymore. So those leaders, and I'm, I'm speaking directly to those leaders and us as an organisation too, our leaders for the arts, but also many other industries should really be considering when they have to rebuild, because they will, we all will, 
when that rebuild happens, how all forms of diversity, that's racial, that's ability, that's uh, gender, uh, sexual orientation, how do we make sure that diversity is truly what we stand by instead of this, you know, tick box statement? And in terms of Black Futures specifically, I have been talking to the Black creatives and workforce in the West Midlands to say, please strategically position yourself, prepare yourself, keep creating, keep writing, be ready for when the doors open back up, or indeed, if the doors never open back up, how we take the arts forwards. I think it's um, it could be an exciting time. And if we don't allow it to be, and when I say we, I mean organisations or venues or whatever, if we don't allow it to be, the workforce must force it to be. And and there are organisations at the moment, uh, like Culture Central, um, who are doing more than a moment, and Incarts, who are doing some amazing work about making sure that the shape changes, that, that the shape of the industry changes. But I still think that a lot of the weight effectively will be on strategic positioning and how we expect to move forwards as a community within the arts industry and what we want. Are you worried about the future? Like, is this what you think is going to happen or is this what you want to happen? Any Anyone who's around me, it will happen for them. I'll tell you that for free because I, I don't take no for an answer and I never have. Heather, you know that. I'm yeah. just, I, I guess I'm thinking about what we're seeing globally which is there is this movement for change, but it's being met with like a massive backlash. Yeah, that's natural. I mean, what 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 is a hero without opposition? You know what I mean? You're not a hero if there's no villain. Are we heroes now then? Oh yeah. <laughs> hey, look, if you're on the right side of the fence, I think they have this saying: not all heroes wear capes. If you are, if you're actively not just on the right side of the fence, if you're actively on the right side of the fence, fighting for what you know to be right, then of course you're a hero, you know? And I'm not worried about the backlash. i tell you why I'm not worried about the backlash ever. I've had it my whole life. I'm black, grew up working class, raised by my sisters, warriors, absolute powerhouses, strong women, you know, and a beautiful mother who, who was ill, really, when I was coming up and my sisters taught me from the very beginning there's going to be oppression there's going to be conflict there's going to be struggles you learn to to revel in them what's the point if there's no conflict so outside of diversity what do you hope that the future of the theatre and the industry looks like I guess because I'm thinking about um the kinds of work that we're doing as much as who's doing it, for example, like Seaview. Oh, yes. Okay. Um, yeah, what what do you think our role will be in that way, I suppose? Well, just to be clear, and I really do need to clear this up, Seaview is not what I think the future of theatre is. Theatre is live. What we do as in live theatre Seaview isn't the future of that. Seaview is a way of working that does push the constructs of what is possible. You see, because for me, I don't see that Seaview is the answer to the future. And I also don't see that the national live digital broadcasts are, are the future. I think the future is somewhere 
the, the future could be potentially somewhere in between that. I've seen some phenomenal work where people have pre-recorded stuff, animated stuff, and projected it onto live theatre there and then that you have to come to see. It does not then go online. It's digital arts mixed with live action, and it's phenomenal. But we just don't really celebrate that or talk about it. I think we will start to have to talk about that kind of thing because it's stuff that can be split between online work and also live action in front of your face. I don't think that celebrating digital work is the ability to record a live theatre production. I think that's boring, personally. But yeah, no, look, Seaview is a digital TV series. It is about the digital work, yeah? But what it also does really strongly is it brings people into the theatre, our theatre at Belgrade, that would never step foot in here. So yeah, that side of it is the future. The wraparound events, all of that keys into what what it is and how you create for the 21st century. Yeah, CV is definitely a potential of something that Belgrade could continue to do moving forward. But it all is galvanised by live arts, by people coming in live, by what we create around a big, ambitious production like Seaview and working with amazing DOPs and cameramen and, you know, that whole TV film industry. Merging it together is a fantastic starting point. Why is it so important to bring people into the theatre who wouldn't normally come, as you put it? Because, uh, well, it's theirs. It don't belong to Hamish or Joanna or Corey or Belisha or Justine or Ray or how how many other names do I need to mention? <laughs> you don't need Nicola to mention anymore. I'm mentioning them anyway. Hi guys, I hope you're all well. <laughs> you know, love you all. But it doesn't belong to us. That's bull. It belongs to them. And I think the reason why it's important to bring them in, whether they stay or not, it's up to them, just to be clear. Whether they stay or not is completely up to them. But the first thing they have to know is that they are welcome. This is their house. Um, I go out, as you know, Heather, I go out to the community a lot. I go and see different communities and their work in their own communities that is just as valuable as the work that we do here. And I don't go out and see their work in order to bring them back, actually. I go out to see their works so that they know I respect them and their craft and their culture. But why I would love for them to be here is because that's what this building is for. It's for all communities. It's supposed to be the beacon. It's supposed to be the beacon that all people can come to and express themselves should they need to and meet people that don't look like them and don't think like them and explore culture and diversity. People quite like picking up on, you've described it as like the bat signal. Or I have, yeah. I was hoping you weren't going to say that. <laughs> but yeah, that is how I describe Belgrade. I'm not going to be here for very long. But for as long as I'm here, and I'm I'm learning so much on this journey, but for as long as I'm here, I will always want it to be the bat signal. I'm a fan of comics and stuff, as you can say. But when you saw the bat signal go up in the air, whether you're reading it as part of a comic book manga or, or whether you saw it on the, you know, Batman Returns or whatever, it's so poignant. Anytime you saw it, you knew someone was coming that was for you. And that's what the, the bow grade there should be. So I have this guy there as a bat signal. It's really corny. We're not supposed to say it outside the building. I've decided that. But that's who we are. And that's how I hope we will become to all cultures and communities. So you mentioned just then, which you haven't picked up on before, 
that you're, at least as far as we know, only here for like a set amount of time. <laughs> Why do you say like that? Either? Well, I mean, you know, I guess things can change, but that's yeah, what I want to ask you. Like, we talked about the future generally, but what are you? What do you hope the future will be for you? Oh, that question's good. I haven't thought about it. I, 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 I will be honest here. I came into this post thinking I was going to bring the whole community with me and we were going to celebrate ourselves. There's a word that kind of means everyone intersectionally. And I suppose being in this post has been really isolating because I know there's people that I've worked with for a very long time that I really wanted them to use me in this post to move things forwards and then I just didn't hear from them and it was the strangest thing because when I was AD Strictly Arts I heard from them lots of people and I noticed even people in my own circle kind of stopped communing with me as a fellow artist they commune with me as AD of Belgrade but not as a fellow artist and I found myself having to break the barrier of the role or trying my best to break the barrier of the role itself. Like everybody knows me. I talk like this. I dress like this. For those who can't see, I'm always in pyjamas and slippers everywhere I go. Shall I describe what you're wearing today? You can do. I think this is a dress up day for me, though. <laughs> but you can do. So he's wearing a black sweatshirt that says victory on it. Thank you, Amy. And... Hey. Uh, then he's got Mario printed socks yeah. and his Nike sliders, which are pretty much standard uniform every day. Oh yeah, there's a massive hole in the bottom of one of the socks as well. <laughs> so th- this is me all day, every day. <laughs> and it was me before getting here, as you know, and it's me still now. Um, so I, I don't I don't think anything's changed for me, but I know I have I have struggled with the with the way people see the role in my own community and we've had social conversations they have been brilliant but then when it comes to the work there's something about what is seen as elite organizations that really did cut me off for the first couple of months but I was just warming into what this role was and then COVID hit and as you know I was doing back-to-back shows before that so I feel like I was I was probably just get, getting into my stride when I was stopped and I think that after this, I'm going to find them, my friends, some phenomenal artists, colleagues, and I'm going to talk to them. I, as an individual, work with teams. I don't work by myself, so where my career goes is irrelevant. I don't, I don't really think about it. I just know I want to get back to creating with my team at Strictly Arts, and I really feel a sense of urgency about how we create in the West Midlands. I love the West Midlands, I love Birmingham, and I really want to begin to connect some dots. So I think that's why I'll be on. I'll just keep working and maybe I'll have a holiday. I know that you are strong enough to make it any barrier, you'll break it because you're made out of stone, you ain't plastic. Because I've read a lot of stuff recently about kind of rebuilding post-COVID that's talking about how venues and organisations need a more artist-led approach and like it's not just about diversity it's about a kind of restructuring on that level is that 
somewhere where you see things might go or yeah i do i do i do see things as going like that and i, and I think if it does there's something that happened maybe that was privilege in that at a time there were all in my opinion there were all these brilliant uh white male directors that um were doing amazing work and made it very mystical made it very much the only they could do it like and, and everybody else whether you know whether it was that you were a white woman or a black south asian british british east asian wherever you were from basically it was almost like you were watching these guys and their craft and it was very specific to them you weren't filled in on all the secrets of how to make that work happen but well, that's gone now you know we are all learning and perfecting our crafts in different ways and it's respected um and so I think that if we do go down this route of like artists led anything similar to the old days, people have to open up about their organizations. So the artists are really, really aware of how the venues are run and why. A huge learning for me was that here, actually. But everybody's so secretive. Everybody's always protecting what's theirs. And it really does isolate artists. COVID has proved that. I think there has been some progress on that during this time, like just thinking about the ways that we've had to work with other venues and, you know, being more transparent about the the struggles that we're facing as well. I think there's always traditionally been like, you know, we, we have to put out a positive message, but actually like during this period, it's also been about managing the negative messages yeah yeah and being transparent in that mm. i think Belgrade's in a much better position than a lot of other venues but it's still a struggle it's a hustle and it's going to be a fight to stay alive that's a fact we're all fighting to stay alive there's no venue in in the country that's not it's that simple if they say they ain't they're lying there's no venue who ain't on the hustle right now we're all fighting and i think that realistically COVID has made everything so uncertain because the whole country knows that everybody's in the same position. There's nothing to hide. Do you feel like that honesty is something that we can take forward from this? I think Belgrade will take the honesty forwards. Do you think the industry as a whole will take no. it? No, 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 no. No way. Belgrade chose to do things in a very specific way. And I think it is about, you know, the Belgrade really being in touch with its community, even though there's a lot more work to do. Belgrade is really in touch with its, its communities and it allows transparency to be a lot easier. And it also allows being on the firing line to be a lot easier because you will have advocates. I read about a company, I'm not going to name because I will be told off, but I read about a company I have to name them. Is no. it an arts company? Or it's, it's an arts company. Okay. I, I read about a company who aren't here in, in the West Midlands. They're, of course, in the big smoke. And that company was talking about its community engagement during this time, about what the venue meant to its community. 
And unfortunately, I knew it to be a lie. And I was really, <laughs> I was really annoyed. I was really annoyed because I thought, rah, look at these guys getting publicity now and using the community as a tool to move forward. Bargrade would never. Bargrade would never. Bargrade has and will always be in touch with its community and more communities as we move forwards. Like I say, still work to be done. But it's things like that that I look and I see and I think, I mean, that particular place doesn't even have a community department, which sounds righteous in some ways, because it's like, well, then everybody must be in touch with the community. But actually, it wasn't yeah, well, that's, that. That's kind of Justine's big thing, isn't it? That yeah. embedding the ethos. Across, yeah, the department. And I mean, she doesn't stop talking about that. And it's really poignant and important. And that's, that's Belgrade. I mean, really galvanized by that spirit and that ethos. And even those who don't necessarily pick up on the direct ethos, the clickspring ethos, which is about the front-facing venue that engages with its community on the stage, off the stage, backstage, wherever. Even if there are people who don't necessarily say that, across all departments on a serious note at the bow grade, they all believe in that. You could go speak to Adrian on the tech team and he'd tell you about his some of his phenomenal experiences that he's had across his career, you know, and now in the position that he's in at the Belgrade. I talk to him very often, actually. He inspires a lot of the, the thoughts that I have. And, you know, the list goes on. All these departments, you know, they, they have the heart for the community, but they also have targets. <laughs> and so I guess the community department is sort of necessary to make sure that it's kept in people's minds 100% and and that the community don't become part of the target Mm. there was another thing that I wanted to pick up on that that I think we kind of touched on slightly but didn't quite go into was because we're talking about black futures and futures generally is it still important to talk about the past like is the black history still important i know you have issues with it being black history month and a lot of people do like it just being this one point dedicated to that but in terms of you know more generally do we still need to reflect on this stuff or is it time we go away from it oh no we can't we can't move away from it let's talk in the in the words of the great nigel bailey if you're listening nigel this one's on you everything is black history i heard um jane elliott i think her name is the white woman who's a real black activist, I think her name is Jane Elliott. But I also, I'm sure I saw Bill Nye, the science guy, talking about it too. <laughs> Do you remember that? Bill Nye, this... I've started in the wrong key. I can't remember how the tune goes. But anyway. It wouldn't be a Corey podcast if there wasn't some random singing in it. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't be. But on a serious note, I mean, those guys, I believe it was a video by Bill Nye, who's talking about the origins of humankind in this iteration, I forgot the name. Homo sapiens? No. Yeah. Was it Homo sapiens? Yeah, we're Homo sapiens. And he was saying, right, we're all from Africa. Whether people like it or not, the only thing that changes that is melanin and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. So what am I saying? What I'm saying is the importance of black history is that you are black history, Heather as a white woman sitting here having this conversation with me, your history is black. I watched this programme a while ago that was about sort of the Enlightenment era. 
So that's kind of like 18th century, Mm -hmm. 1700s. And there was a lot of black people in Britain at that time. And then there seemed to be a little while when there wasn't as many sort of pre-Windrush and everything. Yeah. And they were talk. They had all these historians that were like, "Oh, what happened to the black population in Britain?" Obviously, what <laughs> happened is that they married white people, and their children yeah. eventually became white. White, yeah. And I mean, one of the, the revolutionists in Haiti, I always forget his name. Brilliant, brilliant, done some brilliant work. He speaks about that. He speaks about um, interracial relationships and what that was in Haiti and France and how that works. And he was a he was a slave that that turned revolutionist. And he's brilliant. I, I will try and find his name for you so you can maybe add it to the end of this podcast if you don't mind. The point is, like you just said, there are parts of the history that we just don't hear. We hear about the diasporic nature of the community and slavery. Slavery isn't my history. Slavery is white history. That's what was done to me and my ancestors. That wasn't part of what makes me me. That was part of what makes England England. That's part of what makes Great Britain Great Britain. I mean, I, I was speaking to Nigel about this recently. You know, he's brilliant. Uh, I hope to the, I hope, Nigel, I hope that at some point you come and join us on these podcasts. Nigel is a is a qualified counsellor, but also he's um, a black activist and in, in a lot of ways a mentor to many, a wealth of knowledge. We disagree on a lot, but I really love everything about what he is about. I, I suppose we mainly disagree on method. But he, yeah, so he, he had, we had this conversation the other day. Everything is black history. What, what we choose to celebrate is what the problem is. You know, every couple of years, you know, 10 films come out and they're all slave films. I don't want to see it. Or like, you know, some sort of white saviour. Or some sort of white saviour, which is worse, actually. (laughs) Unless there is that algorithm of either a white saviour or black oppression. Yeah. It doesn't make the screen, which is why Seaview is really important to me. Um, And what's important about the project in general is... It uses those tropes and turns them on their heads. Mm. And I won't ruin it, but it does use the stereotypes in some ways and it goes against the stereotypes in other ways. And it's what happens when those two worlds meet um, in a realistic, gritty drama. But it's also just exciting that it's a genre piece. Mm. Like I read a really interesting article by a film critic called Mark Bernardine, I think. It was a few years back, and it, you know when the whole like Oscars so white thing yeah, was yeah. was trending, and he was talking about part of the problem is the sort of films that are available, the kinds of things that win Oscars are middle brow, emotional stories. They're not like they're not the kind of trashy like Fast and Furious things, and it's not the slavery films and those at that point those were the only things that were being made yeah but and and just to pick up on that that's not by choice yeah and and that's another thing that's important no matter what whether Seaview does really well or you know people don't like it it was made by us the community and written by emerging writers and you know all of those things that means we're able to put that out there as a solid quality piece of work that we've created without us having to be told 
how we should create that work or what sells for the black community or indeed the white community or any community. I want everybody to come and see this work and talk about it. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, you know, things have changed in as much as a lot of it is Black Panther has just inspired a lot more confidence. Wow, he was brilliant. (laughs) Rest in peace to an absolute legend. He was brilliant and has been consistently for a long time and turned down some real roles when you read up about him. He turned down some real that other people would have accepted, you know, and the sacrifice that he, he made especially after knowing the circumstances that he was under and the people around him that kept that secret along with him. Powerhouses. I mean, this is what the arts should be, that expression of live and never die. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Legacy, not intentional, obnoxious or egotistical, just inspirational. Are you laughing at me again? No, no, I was just thinking that's a really lovely way to... To leave things, that's a really nice thought to wrap things um, up. Okay, you're done with me now. Good, because I better get back to work. <laughs> thank you. No, thank you. You've been listening to a Belgrade Theatre podcast with Corey Campbell and Heather Kincaid. In case you were wondering, the name of the Haitian revolutionary that Corey mentioned earlier is Toussaint Louverture. I'll include his full name in the description so you can look him up if you're interested. Extracts from Always Be Around were used with kind permission from Casey Bailey.